once again to Advent here at GBC 2023. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm the lead pastor here at GBC, and I want to personally welcome you this morning as we begin Advent. Really excited for the Advent season personally. Uh, I love this time of year. I get all the feels, all the traditional stuff, the family things, you know, the beauty of this stage and, and those uh, with creative and artistic minds that, that uh, just put so much time into making this place look beautiful. That, that hits for me. But I also want to recognize that for many people, uh, this time of year is a time of tremendous hardship, uh, loneliness, grief, and trial. We need to be mindful of that in a body this large uh, for those around us. So let's, let's be that. Let's be pastoral to each other. As we, uh, as we go through this season. You know, the reality is that we come to this particular Advent, 2023, I think with, with a little bit more heaviness. Uh, certainly what's going on around the world, the continuing war in Ukraine, what's happening in the Middle East, our, our divisions with our own country, at least politically, if not in other areas, there's sort of this foreboding heaviness. And, and I'll tell you, this past week, I don't know if it, it occurred for you, but there was a real sense of spiritual attack and spiritual darkness this last week. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we baptized 21 people who took this amazing step of faith. Amen. And they each testified to something miraculous that, that Jesus had done in their hearts and bringing them to relationship with himself. And then it's like spiritual attack ensued. Uh, my wife and I felt it. We saw it in other marriages. We saw it in uh, just different relationship dynamics. Uh, people really struggling with an overwhelming sense of temptation uh, in regards to sin, a sense of despair, and so on and so forth. And so this morning, we get to preach light into that darkness. Amen? Amen. That's what we're here to do. And be fa in fact, as we're going to see in, in the book of Isaiah this morning, that's exactly what Isaiah does into a prophetic time in which he writes, in which there's a lot of bad news for, for Judah and Jerusalem in particular, that, that Isaiah is prophesying these judgments of God on either side of the passage that we look at today because of their unfaithfulness and their rebellion before God. And so this Isaiah 9, the verses we heard read this morning, is, an, is inserted in here as this beacon of light. In fact, Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. But I want to give us just, in sort of a paraphrase, just kind of a quick backdrop to this situation in which Isaiah writes. Uh, he begins at the very end of chapter 8. He says, you know, here I am with my two children who have been given to me as signs of the prophecies that God's given me for Israel. You can go back and read the first seven, eight chapters of Isaiah. You'll see that he's given these two sons to serve as signs of the specific prophecies that God has given him for Israel. And he says, you know, and people are saying, uh, consult mediums, consult spiritists, consult essentially the occult to, to know uh, for good counsel, for advice. And he, he says, if you go that route, if you go down this road of consulting the earthly, it leads to a place when your needs aren't being met, where you shake your fist at God. Somehow, even though you don't go to him for counsel, you end up enraged with him. And it ultimately leads you to a place of darkness. And so these words, written hundreds of years before Jesus comes, are so relevant. I want to read you the last verse of chapter 8. Isaiah says this, they, that is those, uh, the, the fellow Jews and Israelites, they look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and the gloom of affliction. 
and they will be driven into utter darkness. Isaiah's describing a, the spiritual condition of his people because they've gone to the wrong places for worship, for counsel, so on and so forth. That brings us to our text for this morning. I want to read it again, uh, at least verses two through seven, and then we're going we're gonna to look at it this morning and specifically hone in on one title. Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those same very people he just talked about. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You, speaking of God, have enlarged the nations and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time, as they rejoiced when dividing the, sto- the spoils. Note that Isaiah now moves to tri- uh, language of triumph and victory inserted into this darkness and gloom. For you have shattered the yoke of their oppressor and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Most scholars think he's referring there to the battle over the Midianites conducted by Gideon and his 300 men, not to be confused with the Spartan 300, by the way. And then listen to this verse. In the CSB, it reads this way. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. What a vivid, it's just an awesome sentence in Scripture a vivid picture, a rhythmic line of the fact that God is going to, at one point in history, deliver from the oppressor, even though it's because of the sins of the people that they're oppressed. Well, how is he going to do that? That's what brings us to today, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor. That's this morning's message. Mighty God, that's our message next week. Everlasting Father, that's December 17th, and Prince of Peace. We'll meditate on that on Christmas Eve. His dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. Note this isn't just a king in Isaiah's time. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever The zeal of the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Pray with me this morning. Our God and Father, we echo some of the same feelings and emotions of the time of Isaiah. In in our time, Lord, people are consulting all the wrong voices. Sometimes we as believers in Jesus are consulting all the wrong voices. And yet you speak hope and you speak light for this child that will be born, this son that will be given Lord God, would you speak to each heart this morning? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I firmly believe this morning that that the Lord has something he wants to speak to you specifically. I was uh, alarmed to learn this week, just doing a little research on where do people get advice, right? And I'm not talking about like how long to cook the turkey or, you know, where's the latest deal or some life hack. I mean like, Life advice, big decisions. Where do people go? There were two main sources just kind of in general I saw uh, in my research. Number one is uh, the social media context. So anything from Reddit and TikTok and Snapchat to significantly uh, online gaming communities such as Twitch or Discord. And, and I'll call that, that's a sermon for another day, by the way, but that's like the Rehoboam principle. Why? Because Rehoboam is this king in the Old Testament who goes to his peers, right, who are, who are like-minded to him. That's seeking counsel from our, from our peers who have the same interests as us. 
There's a huge appeal in, in that sermon that we're setting aside for another time. Get somebody in your life who's 20 years older than you and sit with them for counsel. But the other place, not unlike Isaiah's uh, message here, and Isaiah 8 in particular, it, that people go for big decisions, life advice, are mediums and spiritists and spirit guides and tarot cards and Ouija boards. These are the things associated and affiliated with witchcraft of which the scripture says we are not to have any part. And so Isaiah says, shouldn't a people consult their God? And I make that appeal to you and to me this morning. It's not that online communities are, are wrong, but where are we going for the council that we need for this life. So we're gonna look at this idea of wonderful counselor. You know, Handel's Messiah, he actually breaks the names of Isaiah 9, 6 into, into five names. He says, wonderful counselor, everlasting God, and so on. And in the original language, it's, it's actually four. Each name has a descriptor, but I do wanna break it apart for the sake of understanding what did Isaiah mean, in as much as we can tell, uh, and in the context of the rest of the Old Testament, by wonderful. What did he mean? Because we have some connotations right today associated with counselor. What, did, what was his intention? And, and then how do we apply that today? What does it mean for us? In so much as even Zach prayed for us this morning for God as our wonderful counselor. Well, let's begin with wonderful. I want to make the case this morning that wonderful, Jesus as our wonderful counselor, is a king worth giving my life to, a king worth honoring, a king worth following. Wonderful denotes God's majesty and his sovereignty in his judgments and in his redemption. That Jesus is a king worth honoring, even giving my life to. You see, Isaiah 9, these first several verses, is actually kind of like a royal coronation passage. It's the coronation of this child king that is promised to come. And so it has this language that probably in any other ancient literature context would have been understood to be hyperbole. It's so fantastic, these four titles. And yet, when we look at the person of Jesus, we see that these titles are perfectly fulfilled. So we're going to look at a couple different things under this idea of a king worth giving my life to. Number one, he's regal. He's regal. What do we mean by that? Well, think about a, a good king in any kind of lore or uh, history fantasy, movies, literature, a good king, when there is a good king ruling, the people are drawn to him, right? And often they, they want to be in the presence of the king just to be in his presence, but often for the sake of, of hearing his judgments and his wisdom and pronouncements of, of his insight and so on and so forth. We think of Solomon in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says of Solomon that the whole world sought an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Solomon certainly had this, uh, this uh, affect of being regal. And Christ fulfills even the picture of Solomon even more than Solomon himself. He is regal. We're going to look at this in two ways. He's regal in the temporal and he's regal in the eternal. In fact, our text that we're zoning in on for these four weeks kind of hints at it. It says, for a child will be born for us, alluding to Jesus' humanity and later on making the connection to the fact that Jesus is the son of David. You know, in Matthew's gospel, when you come to the uh, birth narrative, in fact, when you come to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew thematically is concerned that his people, the Jews, understand that Jesus the Christ is the rightful heir to the throne of David. 
He is the son of David. In fact, the very first sentence of Matthew 1, verse 1, which might just read whatever to us, would have been profound to Matthew's Jewish audience. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Matthew's saying, hey, take notice. This, this is the bloodline. This is the lineage that proves that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the deliverer, the savior, the son of David. And he goes on to prove legally that Jesus is the son of David. He is regal in the temporal. He is the son of David. He's also regal in the eternal. We see this hinted at in the, in the very beginning of Isaiah 9, 6 as well. For a child will be given to us. Down through the centuries, we come to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son, that as we believe in him, we shall not perish. He is the son of David, but he is also the son of God. Uh, Timothy and, uh, Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 says, speaking of Jesus' second advent, he says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Here in God's perfect sovereign plan, he's talking about that everything is synced up to, to exactly how God ordained it for Jesus coming again. And we can look back now and see his first coming, his first advent, that which we celebrate today in the same manner. But he attributes that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Now you say, well, wait a minute, in the text, that's actually, that title is referred to God the Father. True. Let's look at Revelation 17. The Lamb. The Lamb who throughout John's gospel and the entire New Testament in the book of Revelation is Jesus the Christ. The Lamb will triumph over them because he, the Lamb, is the Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus and God the Father can't both be King of kings except for that Jesus says over and over and over and over again in John's gospel, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is not just the son of David fulfilling all the prophecy of the Old Testament. He is the son of God. He is regal. But he is also transcendent. You know, we want to, in our time today, we want to kind of box up Jesus and get him into something we can understand. And the scripture doesn't allow us to. While Jesus walked this earth and he was incarnated, he became human to empathize with us and understand the trials of this life, he is also transcendent. Colossians 1 tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In other words, he's preeminent. Hebrews 1 tells us that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, his being, his essence. And note the next line, that the Son sustains all things by his powerful word. He is wonderful. He is majestic. He is a king worth giving my life to. Perhaps an illustration uh, would help kind of echo this. Um, if you're familiar, if you're a J.R.R. Tolkien fan uh, in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series, if you've read the books or seen the movies, there's a scene in The Hobbit uh, that's just this profound moment where Balin, the chief dwarf, is reflecting back on the first time that he saw Thorin, son of Thrain, Thorin Oakenshield, the, the heir to the throne of the kingdom of the dwarfs, kind of step out in leadership. And he's describing his escapades. And he says this about Thorin Oakenshield. He says, there is one I could follow. 
and one I could call king. And this is what Isaiah is saying about Jesus. Tolkien, who was a, a believer in Jesus Christ, may have even had this kind of idea in mind as he wrote these books. And I feel a little bit sheepish this morning to even make the case to you that Jesus is a king worth giving your life to. But the reality is that's exactly what Isaiah is doing to his people in the midst of their oppression and their judgment. He's preaching light to them. And some of you have likely not heard this about Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, I'm carrying this weight. There's darkness going on. I was reminded this morning the story of Martin Reinhardt. Martin Reinhardt uh, lived in the 1600s uh, and, and during the Thirty Years' War and, and the plague. And he was the last minister in a particular city in Germany. And in one year, he did 5,000 funerals, including the, his own wife. And yet he writes a hymn of the wonders of God and of the people's rejoicing because he had a perspective that this is a king worth following. What would it look like for me to really submit my life to this Jesus? Let me tell you, I was, I was speaking of the darkness uh, that I've kind of felt and noted this past week. And in particular moments of stress, I felt incredible temptation this week. Do you know that pastors feel temptation to sin and pastors sin? You know, for some of you, that's actually news. Please don't put us on pedestals. But you know, this temptation to kind of take these lustful thoughts and just turn them over in my mind right, and to act on these thoughts that we have or, or to respond. And you know, we, sometimes we can't help a response of anger in ourselves, but then I want to turn that over in my mind and I want to respond. And don't we often do that to the very people we love the most? And, and I'm wrestling with this text. I'm like, what does lordship to Jesus look like here? It looks like I want to hang on to that because it's a way that I can control what's going on around me. And I say, no, take those thoughts captive and release them to Jesus the King. We, you know, we read this verse in Acts chapter two. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ. What would it look like for me to insert my name into that verse? Gary has invited this Jesus, who was crucified, to be my Lord and my Christ. Where is that area for you this week where you need to reinstate Jesus as wonderful in your life? as a king worth following. I want you to reflect on that this morning. He's wonderful. Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, is an advisor worth listening to. In the original language, advisor is probably the best word there. Uh, Dr. Dave Reed says this, wonderful counselor stresses the fact that the Messiah would be endowed with extraordinary wisdom we know and we'll look at in a moment more than that but he's extraordinary his teaching his actions in fact there's a prophecy that comes just two chapters after Isaiah chapter 9 there are prophecies all throughout Isaiah all the way to the end about the coming of the Messiah later called the servant in Isaiah chapter 11 it says this that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and note these three descriptors of that spirit of the Lord the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Wisdom, insight, strength, knowledge. And so it's fair to ask as a proof text, if you're examining who Jesus is, did Jesus fulfill this prophecy? Was he extraordinary in his wisdom and insight? 
And we have the witness of the gospels. Look at what it says about Jesus. At 12 years old in Luke chapter two, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Jesus here is having dialogue with the rabbis in the synagogue at 12 years old. Note, the, we'll read two more scriptures, the words amazed or astonished. Later in his life, Mark chapter one, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law, not in the rabbinic techniques of the time that introduced discussion. Jesus would say things in the, in the spirit of, thus saith the Lord. So he says something like, you have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you even lust after a woman in your hearts, you have committed adultery. He is preaching with an authority that is beyond himself, and the people are astonished. Mark chapter 6, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed? As we come to Jesus' teaching in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The hero is not the, the rabbi or the religious priest. The hero is the half-breed hated Samaritan. In the story of the two sons, or probably the prodigal son, maybe the, as you know the story, the hero is not the righteous, obedient, faithful son. No, the hero is the father who actually dishonors himself for the sake of extending grace to both the rebellious younger son and the self-righteous older son. And Jesus in his profound teaching wants us to see ourselves as one of those two sons yet still loved by a father who would even endure shame for our redemption and on and on we could go. He is, as a counselor, extraordinary. But he's more than extraordinary, he is divine. John tells us in the beginning of his gospel that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, as the incarnated son of God, has the truth of almighty God. In Colossians 2, we read, in Christ, all of the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form. All of the fullness, including the knowledge and wisdom and counsel of God. He is extraordinary. He is divine. And the living word, the logos of God, has given us the written word. He is the embodiment of God's very counsel, even his advice, as it were. And so the psalmist tells us, your decrees, the laws, statutes, ordinances, principles, of God are my delight and my counselors. You know, I, in the beginning, I talked about where people get their counselor, their advice. H huge application for us this morning. The psalmist says that God's decrees are my counselors. Is that true for you? Is it the first place you go when you're facing something really significant is to the word of God? Because listen, the, word will, the, the world will say things like, follow your heart. The word of God says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Your own heart will betray you and lie to you. The world says you determine who you are, your identity and your sense of self to say nothing of your plan for your life. The Bible says God is the one who has made you. You are his image bearer and that he owns you. He has bought you with the blood of Jesus and that he has mission and purpose for you. 
The world says that if I feel something in my passions, in my desires, that I ought to fulfill that longing and do what makes me happy. God's word says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And as I do that, he shapes my desires to be his desires. He shapes my heart to care about the things that he cares about. You see, these are vastly different kinds of counsel. He is a wonderful counselor. He is an advisor worth listening to. Where do I need to seek the wonderful counsel of Jesus this week? Where is it that perhaps you've sought the counsel of the earthly first? Now, let me be clear. We are certainly not uh, anti. In fact, we've talked on this platform about the validity and the need at times for clinical counseling and support. That's a part of the equation. But the first place that I want to run to is the counsel of God. Do you know that the Lord delights to give you counsel? The psalmist says this in Psalm 16, I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble you, trouble me. Can I have a show of hands? Do any of you ever have a night where your thoughts trouble you, ever? I think that's all of us. Right? And, and God says that he delights to counsel us in that. In Psalm 32, he says, I will instruct you and show you the way you should go. Listen to this. With my eye on you, I will give you counsel. That's not the eye of condemning judgment. That's the eye of care and shepherding concern. He is a wonderful counselor. And that brings us to our last point. Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, he promises not to leave me the same. However, even how you came in those doors this morning, if you tuned in online today, Jesus, through the preaching of his word, through the worship, through the fellowship we get together, he actually promises not to leave us the same if we will but submit ourselves to him. He is authoritative and he is transformative. Isaiah 9, 6 says, the government will be on his shoulders. There will come again a day when Jesus doesn't return as we celebrate now in humility and helplessness as his creature. He will come back and he will judge and he will put everything underneath him. And so he invites us into the council to walk in his way. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not just talking about the way to heaven, although that is part of what's meant in there. He's talking about living and walking with him in a completely different and counterintuitive way of doing life. He is the way. In fact, the earliest Christians were called members of the way or the way of Jesus in the book of Acts. He is the way to live differently to deal differently with conflict, to steward our money differently, to pursue our careers differently, to love our families differently. The way of Jesus is counter to all the things that we instinctively in our flesh do on our own. It's a way that loves our enemies. It's a way that serves others first. It's a way that loves and leads through serving. He is authoritative. And what he offers us on the one hand, is a free gift. We're going to talk about that as we come to communion this morning. And yet it will cost me everything I have. Pastor Jason preached on this passage a couple weeks ago. I won't comment a lot on it, but listen to the cost. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
You want to know who you are? Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the entire world and yet forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? He is transformative. Jesus provokes a response from everyone who comes in contact with who he is. We see this when he was here on earth in Luke 19. It says, every day in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people, these are the religious leaders, they were looking away for a way to kill him. That's one response. They're infuriated with him. But they couldn't find a way to do it because here's the other response. All the people were captivated by what they heard. Does he cause you to go to a place of rejection and even hatred or a place of, are you compelled to him to worship and even in, in adoration? And of course, we can't think of the wonderful transformative power of the counsel of Christ without thinking of the Holy Spirit whom he left when he ascended to heaven. We read about that in Acts, if you've been with us. In John 14, Jesus had promised to his disciples, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind me of everything I have told you. And just a chapter later, he will testify about me. The Holy Spirit, as we learn from the Old Testament, then in through the New Testament, has a, a, a several roles in the life of the Christian. But two of the primary ones that Jesus talks about here is to remind us of the things that he has taught, to bring those things to mind as we live this different radical way of living, and also to testify about him, about who he is, the eternal son of God, about the fact that he is regal, that he is transcendent, that he is divine, that he is extraordinary, that he is authoritative, that he is transformative. He is a king worth following. He is an advisor worth listening to. And so I want to ask myself and you this morning, who is the ultimate authority in my life? We're all citizens of a kingdom, either the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of self, or the kingdom of Christ. Where are my allegiances? And there are times while I belong to the kingdom of Christ that I return in my allegiances to the kingdom of self or the kingdom of this world. And yet over and over again, because of the cross of Christ, he provides a way back because he absorbed my treason on the cross. I want to give you one warning this morning, and then we're going to transition to communion. Psalm 25 tells us that the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he reveals his covenant to them. That means this morning that if you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that he is not likely to you, uh, 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 in terms of even how you think about him, a wonderful counselor. He might be perceived as a threat or a judge. And what Jesus does in coming near through the cross is he invites you into relationship with God Almighty. And so I'm going to look at the how of that this morning as we consider communion. I'm going to invite the ushers to come and begin to distribute communion. And then we're going to look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is, how does Jesus become your wonderful counselor and my wonderful counselor? It's through what he provides on the cross and through his resurrection. So listen to what Paul says. And, and as the communion comes around, I'm going to ask you to just hold it, and then we'll take it together. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you can just let it pass by. But ask one of us, tell me more about that. What did that mean? What was he talking about? Don't leave here 
without seeking those answers. So Paul says in Ephesians 2, how does Jesus become your wonderful counselor? Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that's present tense. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. That is the devil, Satan, the evil one, the world system. It's that other kingdom. Paul says, apart from Christ, we are lost. We are destitute for judgment. We are apart from God. And it's likely in your own heart that you know that. That you know that something's missing. And then two of the most powerful words in the New Testament come in verse four, just a couple verses later. And Paul says, but God. But God who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love for you made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead. Note that Paul doesn't say, when you started coming to church, God made you alive in Christ. Or when you stopped doing that sinful habit that you've been doing for years. No, Paul says, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive through Christ because of his mercy, because he loves you this morning. Verses eight and nine tell us that you and I are saved by grace through faith by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross to make me alive. Paul says, it's not from yourself. It's not merit. It's not works. It's not being nice. It's not giving money to the poor. It's not any of that. It is God's gift. It is God's gift. Paul says, so that no one can boast. I wonder this morning, two things. One, will you receive his grace this morning? Maybe you've never known what it is to trust Jesus as your savior. Will you receive the gift of his grace expressed in the cross of Jesus for you today? And believer this morning, will you receive his grace anew for that place where maybe your allegiances have drifted? Joe Stoll, the former president of Moody Bible Institute, asked this question. Are you compelled by the person of Jesus, he says? Do his words ring true in your ears? Do his actions inspire you to know him? He goes on and he says this. We know that Jesus loved us so deeply that he suffered a torturous death for us. Do you know that this morning? That Jesus' death on a Roman cross was for you? We know that he rose again, conquering death, becoming our champion doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, canceling the debt of hell, bringing shalom, that is peace to our chaos, wisdom to our foolishness, grace to our suffering. There is no one who is more compelling and more deserving of our followership than Jesus. He goes on, he says this, if you choose not to follow them, who will you follow? Kingdom of this world? The kingdom of self? I'm gonna leave you with Stowell's last question. He says this, has anyone offered you a greater honor than being called to follow our wonderful counselor? Every issue of the depth of your heart, wrong that has been done to you, wrong that you have done, emptiness, loneliness, grief, Jesus has the power to speak healing as our wonderful counselor for two reasons. One, he died the death we couldn't, have died for ourselves and absorbed the penalty of our sin because he himself was sinless. He had no sin to pay for of his own. And two, because he rose from the grave, he conquered death and he promises us new life. As we come to communion this morning, in just a moment, I know a few of you have yet to 
receive it. We're gonna take this bread into our bodies as a reminder of what Jesus did for us. Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Isn't that what we read in Isaiah 9, 6? A son will be given. Jesus says that his body was given for you. And he says to his followers, do this together in remembrance of me and what he did on the cross. I wanna give you a few moments and then we'll take this together just after I pray. We pray for the bread this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are wonderful. You are majestic. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our counselor. You are the supreme source of wisdom and insight and discernment, advice. But Jesus, we thank you that you're even more than that, that you are the one who gave yourself that we would know what it is to be forgiven, free, and to have eternal life. We thank you for your body given for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread together. The scripture is really clear that sin was forgiven in the Old Testament through the shedding of blood. And Jesus does this audacious thing. He takes a thousands years old custom among the Jews of Passover and he makes it about himself. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, claiming that every Old Testament sacrifice had been pointing to himself and his own shed blood, that you and I would be forgiven. Let's give thanks for the cup. Jesus, we thank you. It is all about you. Thank you for shedding your blood for the forgiveness of my sins and my brothers and sisters here. We take this cup in obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name.